I think we have to really take responsibility and be proactive and educate ourselves and meet our own uh, prejudices with, with kindness, not with judgment, but then undertake some learning. And, and, and really that's the approach that I've always try and build into the work that I do. Because even work, when you work in equalities, diversity and inclusion all the time, that doesn't mean you know everything about everybody. How could you? For me, it's about agility and it's about all of us staying agile in terms of responding and reacting to the, to the brilliant, unique, nuanced, complex, diverse individuals that it's our privilege to teach. Hi, I'm Adam. Hello, I'm Joan. Welcome to Pride and Progress, a podcast that celebrates the progress of LGBT plus inclusion in education. In each episode, we speak with LGBT plus people and allies. We hear their stories, discuss what they're doing to make educational spaces more inclusive and celebrate the power of diversity. Welcome to Pride and Progress. Our guest this week is the wonderful Sean Delenti. Sean uses he, him pronouns and is a multi-award winning teacher, LGBT plus inclusion advocate, trainer, inspirational speaker and author who has been named one of the most 100 influential LGBT plus people in the UK. Sean was honoured at the National Diversity Awards and by the UK Prime Minister for services to education and LGBT plus communities. His inspirational first book, Celebrating Difference, a whole school approach to LGBT plus inclusion, was published in 2019 and was recommended in the UK Parliament by Lord Michael Cashman. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Adam mentioned in your introduction your book, which is a kind of a brilliant combination of your own story and then how schools can create more inclusive spaces. So I want to start by exploring your own story in education. You've had a number of different roles um, throughout your career in education. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that journey. Yes, of course. Um, well, first of all, thank you for the kind comment on the book and thank you for, for taking the time to read it. So I trained as a primary school teacher back in, oh gosh, the mid 90s, I think, at Leicester University and um, was, a, was a primary school class teacher for, for many years and then kind of progressed as, as people sometimes do to curriculum lead, phase lead, uh, you know, assistant head, deputy head. Um, and actually, I thought that would kind of be my lot, really. I thought I'd be doing that um, until I retired or until I kind of <laughs> collapsed. Uh, and then in 2009, things just completely changed out of the blue, very unexpectedly, in a very unplanned way, purely as a result of pupil surveys, pupil voice surveys that we undertook in our school around bullying, around equalities issues. Um, and that revealed to us that 75% of our primary age pupils in our uh, supposedly very inclusive inner London primary school, in inner city London primary school, three quarters of our pupil population were experiencing homophobic bullying in and around the school on a daily basis, whether or not they identified as LGBT+. And at that point, something went off in my head because I'd experienced that in the 1980s myself at school. So I knew how that felt. You know, I was the, uh, I was on the receiving end of sustained homophobic bullying and prejudice related bullying when I was at school myself. Uh, in the days of Section 28, the dark days of Section 28. And um, it rendered me, well, it rendered me suicidal, let's call it out for what it is. Um, and I walked out of state education and left school uh, before I'd finished my final exams. And it continued to affect me in various different ways up until today, really. And I'm 54 in a, in a few weeks. So I, I kind of knew how high the stakes were, were for those wonderful young people that it's our privilege to teach. 
and as a deputy head teacher at that point, um, back in 2009, I had a core duty of care to every single individual within our school. So faced with a data set like that, you have a choice. You either quietly sort of leave it in a drawer and pretend it didn't happen, or you do something about it. So the choice was clear. We had to do something about it. So I did. So my response to that data set was to try and source training uh, in the primary school setting. Now, bearing in mind it was 2009, um, that proved to be really difficult. So I reached out to Stonewall, for example, and said, do you do training in primary schools? And was told, absolutely not at this point, um, because we fear of negative responses in the press and from parents and maybe some faith groups. Um, I reached out to my local council and asked them if they were prepared to uh, advise any training. And, and they said there isn't anybody providing training in the primary sector that we would advise at this point. So once again, I had a duty of care to prevent that bullying, but it was kind of a brick wall in terms of appropriate training. So really, I then sat and wrote my own training program based on the experiences I'd had growing up gay and being bullied for being myself, my experiences as a class teacher, as a school leader. And I also had a part-time role uh, across uh, Southwark and that was a school improvement role. And that was very much around strategic development and training. So really what I did was apply the skills that I'd learned in that role to this specific issue, because I saw it as a, as a matter of culture change, a matter of whole school strategy. So that, that rich experience from school improvement really came into play at that point. And I sat down over Christmas 2009-10 and uh, wrote a training programme for primary schools, for my own primary school actually, called Inclusion for All. And that's where it all started. There's a book that I read a long time ago, and I can't remember the name of it, but there's a quote from that book that I always think about, and it says about taking the, the messy parts of your life and shaping them into something meaningful. And just when you were talking then, that's what I was thinking about, because it sounds like you've taken those really difficult, and, and I'm so sorry to hear about, I'm always sorry to hear about people's experience of bullying and prejudice. Thank you. But it sounds like you've taken those really difficult, messy parts of your own story and shape them into something really meaningful that can really bring around change for for the children in school now that training program that you were talking about that um, award-winning training program that you were just talking about which i believe was was endorsed by the, the department of education as well could you tell us how that training program that you wrote for your own primary school for your community then started to become a book because the book, um, your book, Celebrating Difference, A Whole School Approach to LGBT Plus Inclusion, I believe was published in my kind of second or third year of teaching. And I remember becoming aware of it just at the time when I was starting to, to become aware that there was other LGBT teachers in primary because I hadn't seen them before. And books like that, it's, it's really powerful to kind of realize that other people are, are championing this work in primary schools. So I'm interested to hear how that training programme you wrote for your primary school was kind of born then into the book. I mean, just to sort of put my journey, and it has been a real journey, um, into context. Back in, in 2009, when we got that data set, uh, as well as writing a training programme, I made a choice to come out to my whole school community. Prior to that, a few people kind of knew and a few people kind of suspected um, but on a whole school basis in terms of, of, of students or pupils and, and parents and governors, they didn't know. And alongside the, the first delivery suite of that training programme, 
you know, I, I just thought, what do we do in terms of disability representation? What do we do in terms of race and gender representation? We use role models. And we're talking about homophobic bullying here. We're talking about LGBT plus identities. Surely, therefore, we should bring in a diverse role model as a speaker to make this real, to humanize it for our whole school community. So when they start slinging around words like it's so gay, that's so gay, and other pejorative terms, they understand the human consequences. We've joined the dots for them. And then something off went off in my head and I went, hang on, you could be that person in your own school, but you've chosen not to be. And I have to be kind to my younger professional self. You know, he'd had a really tough time at school. So when he went into the education profession and heard microaggressions in staff rooms, you know, amongst students, amongst parents, um, self-protection kicks in. And that's why I'd kind of kept my, my, my whole identity out of the workplace. But once I realized that the extent to which homophobic bullying was affecting my whole school community, that seemed to me like the time to come out. And it was really scary. Um, and, I, and I thought long and hard about it, but it just felt like the right thing to do. As well as delivering the first suite of training in my school, I came out in an assembly uh, when I fed back the student data to our pupils from the questionnaires. Um, and it was, and it just, it was a very natural thing to do because I went, look, we've got data telling us that lots of you are experiencing homophobic bullying. You know, I experienced homophobic bullying for being gay. It just came out really. And, and I have to say the response from the whole school community was, was completely joyful and moving. But the interesting thing was that night I went home, I'll never forget it. I went home and I, I sat in my bed and I just cried for hours. And it wasn't fear, it was relief. And I realized that that day at the age of 40, that was the first day, uh, the following day when I went to work was the first day in my entire professional life that I'd gone to work fully as myself, not having to invest around a fifth of my energy investing into to lying and changing pronouns and covering up and lying about what we did I did with my partner at the weekend. And of course, that meant that I could then apply that energy to my work with young people, with my colleagues, with parents and, and in terms of improvement within the school and across the borough. And uh, I don't think until that was revealed to me by coming out at school, I hadn't kind of realized how much energy it took to lie, to conceal, to be inauthentic. And as a school leader, I thought, my goodness me, I don't want anybody in my school to have to live their lives, whether it's in a classroom or a staff room, having to conceal any aspect of their core identity. Um, so that really brought home to me the importance of creating an authentic workplace and an authentic culture in which everybody can be themselves and share as much of themselves as they as they want to as they choose to so it's not about forcing people to be coming out and, and interestingly that coming out assembly hit the press immediately uh, and I had radio stations ringing out on tv but the TES contacted me Times Educational Supplement contacted me and said would you be prepared to do uh, a cover story alongside a secondary school uh, a school leader who's gay as well because we can't find a primary school male gay leader who's prepared to talk openly in the press about being gay. And, and I was astounded because I knew quite a few, <laughs> but they weren't prepared to talk as openly as I was. And I thought, you know what? It's out in my school community. That means it will be out in the borough. So let's just go for, you know, let's just do it. So I, so I did do that cover story along with it with a head from Birmingham. And for a while, we were like a revolving door at, at Stonewall conferences and anti-bullying conferences, because there was this one 
secondary school head and then there was myself representing primary and people must have got sick to death of it i got sick to death of it but you know you jump forward to where we are now and you've got things like um you know lgbt ted and diverse ed uh you've had that you know daniel tomlinson's gray's book big, big gay adventures in education uh we've you know i'm part of a network for the naht which is an lgbt staff network and that was i mean just to see that you know and i'm not i'm not saying you know oh look what we did aren't we clever it's not about that it's, it's about going how joyful it is that there doesn't have to be that revolving door of of sean delenty and then and the other school leader because it, and that's how it should be you know everybody should be able to bring them full selves bring their full selves to work in terms of the training program that i wrote inclusion for all as i as i stated earlier i wrote it for my own school and it was it was a specific response to a specific problem and uh, I wanted it to be whole school. It was a non-negotiable that every member of, a, of the school community was there to experience it because none of us had ever had any LGBT plus education when we were at school ourselves, me included. None of us had ever had any LGBTQ plus content uh, initial teacher training, including myself. So it really was making it up as I went along and I delivered it to my whole school community uh, over a full day with then follow up in staff meetings across the year, curriculum work, policy work, work with parents, work with governors. And I just immediately saw from very small steps, just what impact those small steps can make upon people and, and how joyful that can be. And I just thought, let's ring up some other local schools and just see, uh, and I did. And that was interesting because quite often the head teachers of those schools went, we don't have any uh, of those pupils here. To which I would say, well, how do you know? Because they don't all walk around in rainbow t-shirts, you know? And the second thing that I was uh, told was we don't have any homophobic bullying here. And I said, well, that's what we thought in my school. It was all covert actually. So please don't just sit there and tell me you haven't got it because I don't believe you. But gradually people started going, okay, this this thing this training you've done in your school that we read about in the press would you come and do it for us and it started off across Southwark it started then splintered out into other London boroughs and then I found myself getting on the train and on planes across the UK and now I've delivered it to it's around 90,000 I think UK professionals and across around 20 to 25 countries um, globally which is a complete surprise to me because as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm still that class teacher. You know, I'm out of class now, but I, I, I approach this work from the point of view of being a, a class teacher, a school leader, a school improvement partner, and hopefully a, a compassionate human being that wants everybody to be okay and feel like they belong, which they do. Absolutely, and I've heard so much positive feedback from people that have been involved in your training, Sean. And I think, well, Thank you. many, many, many keys to your success, but what you just distilled there was probably what it is, because even though, you know, you've drawn upon your own experiences, but keeping that at the forefront of what it is to be a teacher or a governor or in a school and with the children, the students and the teachers is the most important part of that that's what the focus should be and you know a lot of the head teachers have fear around that and like you say we have no hope bullying in the school not one trans child exists at our school that type of thing um you know and some of the things you said there really resonated um and we talked to a few head teachers or uh, slt in previous episodes um troy jenkinson and helen richardson most recently and they talked about uh, helen in particular that feeling of being like late to the party uh, in the way that you kind of describe by thinking oh suddenly when i'm 40 it's almost like you're starting your life properly isn't it by having that authenticity not having the sense of information management in school where you're having to think about what you can and can't reveal, which is just exhausting, and then refocusing those energies into something, you know, what is your job and your passion and your energy, which is incredible. Um, I'd love to talk a bit more about some of the things you use in your book. Yeah. Um, when I get asked to do things in school, uh, you know, in 
people say, right, what's the quick win to make our schools more inclusive? I said, well, there's no quick win, but there are sort of three big things I generally talk about, which I think your book beautifully captures. Um, the first is developing empathy. And I think your book does that in a great way by sharing your story and the experiences of many others that grew up during that time. So we understand the lived experiences of those people and what it feels like day to day, particularly even in 2021, because there's sometimes this misconception, or 2022, I should say, um, that things are now fine and you know, inclusion is great. Um, the second is language which people have this often fear of getting wrong and as a consequence don't use, creating that idea of silence, and then systems and structures uh, and policies. So like I say, I think your book is a great example of that or a great way of capturing those things. And I really smiled the other day, I had to pause for a moment because I saw on Twitter, Sean, that you went to my old school from where I was a child. And I, I started school with sex secondary school in 1995 and in the way that you've described, you know, homophobia was rife and there was no LGBT inclusion. So to see you stand in front of all the colleagues at my former school and then see some of the tweets they put afterwards about how I think one of them had said something to the effect of you've kind of put you've, you've fanned the flames of my passion for DEI now and they went away and looked at their curriculum. And so I had a real moment there where I had to pause and think, wow, in 25, six years, how far that school has come. So. That's not so much a question, so much as some praise, but can you just tell us a bit about this book, the programme, some of the things you've done to school and how that's all come together? Yeah, yeah, I will do once I pull myself together because it always makes me really emotional <laughs> when people tell me things like that. And I, I'm so pleased to hear that. Um, and that that in itself, I think, is a, is a um, it, you know, we, it, it can be hard being who we are and it, and it can be hard doing this work. Um, and now more than ever, actually, I think, particularly when you do it on your own, which is what I do, you know, I'm not Stonewall, I'm not just like us, I'm just me. And that's how it's always been, really. Um, so you kind of get the joy from it, but you also get all the flack and the hate uh, as well. So, so those little moments when somebody goes, actually, you went to my old school, they're really special and they mean a lot. So I'm, I'm really pleased and I'm really pleased for you, but also for the school community now, those children in that school now, that, that that school picked up the phone and contacted me. So thank you for feeding that back. The book came about purely because uh, I think um, by 2016, 2017, whenever it was, I was very lucky, blessed, whatever the term is, to, to win a number of awards. And that's not why you do it. You know, you don't set out to do that. You just set out to change one person's life. That's all I ever kind of thought, or one school's experience of life. But as a result of that, um, Bloomsbury Education came to me actually they'd been following me covertly on Twitter I think and said will you write a book and it was brilliant actually it was such a good opportunity because from 2009 up to the point that I wrote the book really I'd just been running as hard and fast as I could you know it's like I'd got this ball in my hand and people seemed to want to take the ball from me and I thought this might not always be like this this you know things could change we've seen from uh, you know the America Hungary Poland how quickly things can change so as far as I was concerned I just wanted to put my head down and run with that ball and, and make as big a difference as I could but inevitably over time particularly when you're working on, on your own that starts to grind you down particularly when you've got a full-time school leadership role as well so when the book came along that was a really good opportunity to pause actually and take some time out and really reflect on I guess what my core skills were I guess upon why I'd managed to achieve what I'd achieved, whatever it is I've achieved, particularly in the primary sector, because even now people will still sometimes look at me and go, you, you did what in, in primary schools? You know, that's still there. And, and, and I thought it was really important for um, capturing, capturing, I suppose, the approach that I used and the, and the kind of legacy, if you want to use that term, 
um, for the moment, but also for people in the future. So hopefully they can pick up the book when I'm gone and go, oh, okay, you know, this is, this is how you do it. So it was, it was a real joy writing the book and it was an opportunity to kind of really drill down into why I've managed to do whatever it is I've done uh, and look at it more strategically. And as part of that, they asked me to share my lived experience as you've, as you've alluded to. Now, interestingly, the very first suite of training I did in my own school, I didn't share any lived experience because I didn't want to make it about me. It, for me, it always had to be about our young people. That's why I do it. And, and that first set of training went well, but one of my colleagues um, came up to me afterwards in the kitchen and went, that was really good. But I think that you've told me before what happened to you at school. I think it would be really powerful if you shared that at the start. It would make it a bit more personal for people. So the second time that I delivered the training, that's when I started sharing my own lived experience. And that's where things really started to take off, I think. And when I started writing and blogging uh, for the Huffington and various other uh, online publications, I think that's what people connect with. And, uh, and people in schools particularly, I think, they, they sometimes need that lived personal experience in order to develop that connection. Because for some people, being LGBT plus is so different from their own lived experience that it just takes that it's humanizing isn't it <laughs> you know it's stripping of the way they label we're not on we're not an lgbt plus thing we're a person who just happens to be lgbt plus let's focus on the person you know people do it with neurodiversity as well they focus on all the labels and forget there's a person there so i try to make it as as friendly as compassionate as open as honest as i as i could and that's what i captured in the first part of the book i hope and, and there was also something there about getting trust, building trust, because let's face it, a lot of people are, are really quite challenged or a little bit offended at times by some of the things that I talk about. So if I can um, build trust with them and build that strong relationship, and schools are founded on strong relationships, um, that's, that's, it creates a level playing field, I suppose, onto which you then build some of the stuff that's a bit more challenging um, around, you know, use of language, around uh, processes. And, 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 it, and what's really interesting is even now, and it happened last week, schools will phone me up and they go, we know we should be doing this. Um, a, because we've got LGBT plus students in our schools, B, because we've got bullying going on, and C, because we know we've got a statutory expectation, but we don't know where to start and we're worried about saying the wrong thing. Even, even now, you know, with all the resources that are out there and all the groups that are in this space now, people still are just scared of getting started. So I think if I've got one core skill, I hope, it's that I go in and give people a sense of permission and go, it's all right, I know it's a bit scary, I get it and I felt that too but it's okay and look at what happens as a result it changes your whole school community forever and that's a joyful thing definitely and I think the way you do that not only in, the, in your uh, your sessions but in the book is brilliant because I think like you said there's a fear around it and sometimes you know I've seen some people do training and it's quite confrontational the staff but yours is an approach that brings people with you and throughout the book you have moments that are take a pause and these are great opportunities for staff to, or anybody, to stop and think and put themselves in the shoes of an LGBT person. We're not one big homogenous group, like you said, and just think about what it means to be LGBT. Or in this example, it's thinking about constructs of gender. So I'll just read this, but I think it's a really nice way in which you, you phrased it. So in this take a pause section, you've said, imagine if you can, growing up in an environment in which nothing is classified by gender. Books, names, clothes, hairstyles, clubs, activities. They are all gender neutral. Apart from your physical sex, how would you know whether you identified as male, female, or something else entirely? 
Take time to think about this, noticing any charged thoughts, feelings, and sensations that arise as you do so. That's just one paragraph, but what a powerful, whether it's a bit of CPD or a conversation or something to develop empathy, but that just blows the lid off it, doesn't it? I think it's great. Yeah, and I think what I learned from being a school leader and working in school improvement, actually, um, is, and, and this is why I'm so grateful to have had that role, uh, and then being able to apply it to this particular issue or these particular issues, I learned the value of stopping, you know, stopping treading water, uh, firefighting, whatever you call it, on a daily basis and actually taking time out as a school leadership team and pressing the pause button and going, let's look at everything we're doing. Let's look at what we want to do, but let's look at how that makes us feel. And actually, you mentioned the DFE earlier on. Where, uh, early on in 2010, once it hit the press uh, about what I was doing in primary schools, um, which is kind of how it was being uh, talked about, you know, what's he doing in primary schools? <laughs> I'm just doing training to keep children safe, you know. Um, but the DFE rocked up and Ofsted rocked up and Stonewall rocked up. And, and the overriding kind of opener to all of those conversations was, how are you getting away with this in primary schools? And, and as a school leader, I actually found that mildly offensive because what was I getting away with? I was working to make our school a safer place, not just for one minority group, of course, but for everybody, because there wasn't just homophobic bullying. There were other forms of prejudicial bullying and there was bullying uh, and pejorative language. You know, if you've got, I don't know, if to do with the pop group that you liked, if you like the wrong pop group or the wrong phone or the wrong trainers, you know, we, we had to deal with all of that as well. But the biggest problem in that moment was homophobic bullying. So you have to do something about it. Um, so I found the kind of line of questioning from those organisations interesting because it's my core duty as an educator to prevent bullying and make sure everybody's included. If I, if I don't buy into that as a core duty, then really I should go and work as a, as a barista or something, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, you shouldn't be working in a school. It's all or nothing. You know, it's not let's keep the school safe for some students, only the ones that align to my personal, political or theological point of view. It's all or nothing. So that's what I said to the DfE, to, to Stonewall and, and, and so on and so on. Um, you know, all we're doing in this primary setting is talking about the simple fact that LGBT plus people exist, have lives, has histories, have families, have nuanced or complex, unique identities. And some children coming into our nursery in primary school, which we, you know, we had a lovely big nursery. Some of the children that arrive on their very first day into nursery have, go have got same-sex parents. Some of them have got parents that are trans. Some of them have got friends and older brothers, sisters, whatever, who are LGBT plus. So they arrive at school with that knowledge already. So therefore, if from nursery, reception into, into key stage one, if we're not even talking about the simple fact that LGBT plus people exist, then we are othering those children from the beginning of education. We are acting in a shameful way and that will perpetuate shame within those young people. And that's not why I chose to become an educator. The line of the DfE back then was very much, will you, will you write a training booklet for schools? And I said, no, because that's actually been done. You know, other organisations had done that at that point. And I'd seen heads throw it in the bin and throw it in their drawers because it felt frightening. And I've got no judgment on that because I was frightened too. 
for me, there was something that had to happen before the nice suite of materials were given to schools that they then could choose to quietly ignore. And it was dealing with that fear. It was dealing with that anxiety. And my strategy for dealing with that was humanizing it, was going, I know it's scary because there's been points in my life when I've been scared of being gay, when I've been scared of other LGBT plus people because of the internalized homophobia that I experienced growing up. So I get it, but it doesn't make it right. And as educators, we have to face it. We have to meet it with kindness and curiosity and without judgment, because if we allow it to fester within ourselves, it will fester in our school communities and young people will be damaged by that. And that's where that focus on lived experience comes from in my work, I think. I love the language that you use there about it being your core duty as an educator. And it reminds me of when we spoke to the, the fantastic head teacher, Kirsty Stubbs, who talked about it being her moral duty as mm. an educator. And at the time when we spoke to Kirsty, and, and still now when I hear you speak about it, I think it's it's almost frustratingly refreshing because it shouldn't be a refreshing thing. It, no. it shouldn't be something that people are hearing for the first time. It shouldn't be something that surprises people that it is our core duty and our moral duty to make sure that all children are included and safe and that we celebrate difference in our schools. Yeah. It shouldn't be as refreshing as it is to hear people talk about that. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the moral rationale for LGBT plus inclusion, inclusion work because... Um, uh, you know, I, anybody that's ever been to my training, um, and I would have used it the other day when I went to your old school, Adam, I have a slide that sets out the moral expectations or the moral rationale for LGBT plus inclusive education. But it also then has a bullet point list of the statutory expectations. And I've always maintained from the outset that actually if I took all of those statutory expectations off, the moral rationale should be enough. And of course, laws can change the equality act could change it could be compromised you know it could be taken away and we've seen that happen in other countries so all of us that work in education um and i've written about this in the in the forthcoming diverse educators book um manifesto i think it's out in april um is do do we undertake education around lgbt plus identities lives histories and experiences because we're told to by the government or any government, or do we do it because it's the right thing to do, the kind thing to do, and the thing that's going to keep our children safe, give them a sense of belonging so that they can focus on their studies and have the best academic outcomes. And for me, that's the reason I do it. And, and I know there's lots of people working in our profession that do it for the same reason, but we can't sit in a space where we just hang on the Equality Act and, and purely do it because the Equality Act says so, because laws can change, uh, progress can go backwards, it's never linear, and we have to be ready for that, because do we stop caring for diverse school stakeholders just because laws change? I don't believe we do, we do or we should. And I think so much of what you spoke about has been around empathy, and Adam spoke about, um, Adam gave that example of when you encourage teachers to reflect on gender in society, and you spoke about sharing your story, and I think that's such an important step because if a person has grown up um, heterosexual and cisgendered in our society, it is understandable that they don't realize that our wor the world is catered to them. 
Mm. And if they grew up in an education system that in no way exposed them to other ways of existing, it's understandable that they don't realize how difficult it might be for people who exist outside of that. I, I can't remember who it is that, that spoke about it being like telling a fish that they're, they're in the ocean yeah. because they're, they're not aware of it. They're surrounded by it. That's the way it's always been. And unless, unless, unless you can't breathe in that ocean, you don't realize that you're surrounded by water. And I think by sharing your experience and telling that your story that's what starts to build empathy. And certainly in my experience, starts to help people to realize the importance of this work. Obviously you've delivered this, this kind of support now to so many schools and um, through your book and through your training programs. I wonder if there's any specific examples that you've, you could share with us of, of when you've really seen that bring around change in a, in a particular teacher, in a particular setting, where people have really started to realize the importance of this work because of the empathy you've built with them. I think, um, I think the work that I did on the Isle of Man is a really good example of that. Uh, I did work on the Isle of Man over a, a three-year period, I think between 2016 and, and 19, uh, although I still go back. Um, and that, that, I don't know if you know the history of the Isle of Man, um, but it, it, it had a, an interesting relationship, shall we say, with, with homosexuality in particular and LGBT plus identities and rights. And to put it into context, their Equality Act has only really just come into on, on, on the statute books over the last few years. I wish I could off the top of my head quote you the date that homosexuality was decriminalized there, but it's not coming to me, I'm afraid. Um, but it, but it, but it, when you see it, you'll be startled by it. And I was, I live in London, and for the last 20 years of living in London, I've met probably around 20, I guess, gay men from the Isle of Man. And they all left the island to come and live here because they'd been beaten up, because they've been very badly bullied at school, and they've been rejected by their families. So the Isle of Man was kind of already on my radar. Um, and I didn't want to stereotype an island, I didn't want to stereotype a community, but certainly I sensed from those individuals that, that it ran very deeply with them, and, and, and a lot of them said, I'm never setting foot on that island again. In 2016, I was invited to go and speak at the first island international diversity conference, uh, along with um, CEOs from a lot of big global brands, so they were all very high-flying business people and then I was the, the, the teacher on the end and I, I you know my imposter syndrome really kicked in but but I was the person that was invited to go back which was really moving and joyful and they were really honest with me and they said we've got a huge amount of work to do in our schools uh, in our whole school community around this because you'll you'll know the history of the island and um, we're frightened and there it is again that fear that not knowing how you start so I agreed to go and meet with the, their education department. I, I then delivered a training day for all of the school leaders on island, which was a day that I will take, you know, I will never forget that day. The stakes felt so high. And for me, going back on island, it's, I mean, it's a beautiful place and there's some beautiful people there, some beautiful open-hearted people there. Um, but there were some people there that with some very, very entrenched views in society, in the education department and in schools as well. So for me, it felt like going back into the kind of 70s in terms of some of the attitudes that were being openly expressed to me, not just around sexuality, but also to do with race. There was a real concern 
on Ireland from some members of the government, that even the, the simple fact that I was on Ireland. Um, so the stakes were really high. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I delivered training to all of the school leaders. And um, it, was, it was just such an emotional day. I can't describe it, actually. Even now, when I think about it, 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 it felt, I mean, they said to me, this feels like, this feels like history today because we've never sat in a room together and had these conversations. And, and I just went, what do you think these conversations are about then? You know, do you think I'm here with a rainbow flag to convert everybody to being LGBT plus people? Do you think that's what I'm here? Do you think I'm here to kind of recruit or groom people into being gay? Of course I'm not, of course I'm not. I'm here to make sure that every diverse individual that goes through your schools isn't bullied, hopefully, feels they belong, and can achieve their very best and be happy and live with the family that they've been born into, you know, or adopted by. It's as simple as that. And again, once I kind of went to those very simple core messages, we, we clicked and we connected. And by the end of the day, colleagues were coming up to me, senior colleagues were coming up to me and, and weeping because they went, we knew we should have always been, we knew we should have been doing this. And, and because of our own fear, or because of politics or because of the press, we, we didn't do it. But despite that, we could see young people in our care suffering. And, and that's not acceptable. That's never acceptable in, in, in any school. Uh, so there was this huge sense of relief. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I don't have the words to describe what happened that day. And, and as a result of that, you know, I then set up a pilot scheme and we worked with different schools on Ireland. I then went and met the Isle of Man LGBT plus youth group, bless their souls, you know, and listened to what their experiences were of being LGBT plus on the island at that point. And they said things like, we're invisible. Nobody ever talks about us. I've never even heard a teacher use the word lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender. You know, I went back to my hotel that night in Douglas and recorded a video which I've still got and I can't watch it because I, I'm just talking it all out just to get it out because it was so distressing. But over that three year period, people welcomed me and schools became more open. And I spoke to students, I spoke to staff, I spoke to the youth services and I was invited to go up to the Tinwald, which apparently is the oldest continuous government in the world, so I'm told. Um, and I spoke in their parliament to around, I think it was around 40 government ministers who gave up their lunch to come and hear me out and their chief minister, which is their prime minister, essentially, um, Howard Quayle at that point. And, and there was this sense of relief, this sense of letting go of, of all of that fear and anxiety about what LGBT plus work in schools is, and, and more importantly, what it's not. And then we just moved on and the schools have continued to move on. And um, we actually got to the point last year where they had their first Isle of Man community island-wide pride, which is something that I discussed with them um, on one of my trips there a couple of years ago before lockdown and mooted the idea that they have a community pride that involves everybody. And that took place last year. I couldn't go because of lockdown. <laughs> so I had to sit at home and watch it on the internet. And I just wept happy tears for those young people. And, and, and those, you know, those education professionals and government ministers who'd, who'd gone, do you know what? We need, to, we need to look down the barrel of our own prejudice or our own fears or our own anxieties 
and put the needs of young people first and bless them that's what they did you only get an experience like that once in your life I think to basically be handed an island-wide community and told we need to change will you help us that's well I mean I'm almost speechless Sean that's such an amazing thing to have been involved in and to see that very tangible change is incredible and it strikes me there there's a real parallel in in the way you've described the change on the island and the change you felt um when you described earlier sort of coming out of 40 earlier you described that sense of relief at mm. 40 and that feeling being able to let go and mm. you've just described that almost in the same way that you've described how this school community felt because actually it felt like it was harder for them to suppress lgbt inclusion and to sort of you know maintain that heteronormativity once they let go of that they all felt yeah. that sigh of relief and then suddenly like you say they just ran with it I mean I think that's just incredible yeah and all credit to all of them you know it, it was a shared journey and a shared responsibility but you know time and time again it does come back to if we as human beings learn to let go whether it's a tradition whether it's something we always do in our schools simply because we've always done it or whether it's ingrained prejudice and bias when we learn when we learn to let that go that creates a space and any number of things can come into that space. And that's really exciting if we allow it to be. And I think what's interesting about where we are now is we've all been locked down, shut in our homes, and we had to learn to let so much of our lives go. So actually, I'm hoping that the human race is a little better at letting things go. So let's start to let go of the things that are unhelpful uh, in terms of including young people in our schools. <laughs> I think the ripple effect of what you're doing is immense and I love that it started in your school community in your one primary school where you noticed that there was a problem that needed addressing and the way that that's rippled out to other communities is incredible and towards the end of your book there's this kind of call to action for teachers where you say that it has to stop and you call educators to do what they can to try and celebrate difference and make our schools more inclusive spaces. And I think you, you end by saying, be kind, be safe, be proud, be you. Um, and I think what you're doing through your work, through your book and everything you've discussed today is that you're giving teachers the permission and, and allowing them to realize the power that they have in their classrooms and in their schools and their communities, because as teachers and educators, we have an immense power to impact the communities that we're serving. But often as teachers and educators, we feel like that power is limited to the school community that we're serving or yeah. within our school community. And I wonder, you've also done so much kind of charity and advisory work on a scale that is beyond individual school communities. Could you talk a little bit around what kind of larger structural changes or policies that you think are needed um, on a bigger scale than just individual schools to make our educational spaces more inclusive moving forward? What would I like to see? Well, I would still like to see every initial teacher training faculty delivering LGBT plus sessions that are longer than half an hour or an hour. You know, I increasingly see young teachers coming into the profession and mature students who go yeah we did talk about this a little bit but it's always a little bit you know and, and I think we need a much more strategic approach to to diversity and LGBT plus inclusion in an intersectional way in initial teacher training and on an ongoing basis in school-based CPD and I think we have to really take responsibility and be proactive and educate ourselves and meet our own um, prejudices with with kindness not with judgment 
but then undertake some learning. And, and, and really that's the approach that I've always try and build into the work that I do. Because even work, when you work in equalities, diversity and inclusion all the time, that doesn't mean you know everything about everybody. How could you? For me, it's about agility and it's about all of us staying agile in terms of responding and reacting to the, to the brilliant, unique, nuanced, complex, diverse individuals that it's our privilege to teach. It's really interesting that you talked about um, earlier on about, uh, you know, kind of strategic approaches to um, LGBT plus education. One of the questions that I love to ask, and it always gets really interesting responses, is, is this. So you two might want to ponder this. Where, when and how did you get educated about heterosexual lives, histories and experiences when you were at school yourself, whether it was nursery, primary, secondary, high school, middle, whatever it was you went to, where, when and how did you get taught about heterosexual lives, histories and experiences? Adam? By me. I mean, the, the very fact that I can't pinpoint a specific date, it just shows how all-encompassing it is, isn't it? But it would have been day one of picking up the first nursery book, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's everywhere, all of the time. But actually, when I ask that question, uh, when I'm training teachers, often they they go really quiet and it, it's like there's a bit of dissonance and it's because I've used the word heterosexual so what they'll often do is try and answer that question and go oh we didn't learn about those people they these things weren't talked about when I was at school and I find that really interesting because you can see their brains are just going doesn't compute so I read it again so I, I, I you know where when and how when you were at school yourself did you learn about heterosexual people and quite often again they will just sit and stare at me and go uh uh and if, uh, so what I do is then change it and I go non LGBT plus people and then they start to kind of warm up a bit and it's because you've used the word heterosexual and, and of course after some discussion what they realize is that they learned about heterosexual people from the very beginning actually even before that in the books they were reading at home and in the models and images and role models that they were exposed to but it wasn't labeled as heterosexual however when we are talking about LGBT plus awareness in schools, it's always got that label attached to it. So it becomes a very definite thing. And of course, what I'm really talking about is heteronormativity. Um, but it's a really challenging question for a lot of people. And yet it's quite a simple question. And of course, what it brings out, if we are aspiring to equality, which we should be, and the law says we should be, if we're talking about heteronormativity in every aspect of school life in every moment of every day well surely that's where we should be learning about lgbt plus lives about people of color about people who are neurodiverse and so on and so on because that's fair that's kind that's equality isn't it um sean it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this morning and to hear the incredible insights and your experiences as a teacher the work you've done as an activist in your book and all those wonderful things our final question to all of our guests is, uh, what's the best thing about being an LGBT educator or activist? Gosh, the best thing about it. Well, the best thing about being an educator, whether you're LGBT plus or not, is the joy and privilege of working with our diverse, unique young people. And to be able to also then have the privilege of serving as, a, as an LGBT plus role model, um, knowing that some of those young people will be LGBT plus themselves, to be in a position to enable them to go, yeah, being LGBT plus can be difficult, but despite that, you can you can have a great life. You can live a joyful life. You can be happy and you can be successful and you, and you can aspire for great things. 
that is a real joy and a real privilege, um, as is the potential for making change and making a difference. And I hope that's something that all educators feel empowered to do. That's an amazing answer, Sean. And thank you again so much for joining us this morning. Uh, just before we uh, draw to a close, can you tell everybody how they can get in contact with you, social media, engage with your work, all those kind of good things? Oh, yes, thank you. Um, if they people want to follow me on Twitter or interact with me there, I'm uh, at Sean Delenti. Uh, I'm also www.seandelenti.com and people can just contact me through a contact form on that website. And I've also kept a running record of all of my activities for the last 13 years on Facebook at a dedicated Facebook page, which is called Celebrating Difference, LGBT plus inclusion with Sean Delenti. And uh, if colleagues want to like that page and then head to the photo albums, you'll see lots of visual examples of work that schools, teacher training faculties, universities, businesses have done with me over the last 13 years. So I hope people will enjoy that and feel free to share your own work there as well. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Sean. It's, I've followed you for a, a long time now and it's, this is the first time we've, we've been able to have kind of a, a conversation at length. And you really do radiate kindness and curiosity and, and empathy and education. And I think that one of the things that you, you mentioned the word permission earlier, and I think the work that you're doing is it's giving teachers permission to do what they morally believe is right and to make their schools more inclusive. It's giving schools the permission to celebrate difference, but ultimately all of that work is giving children and young people the permission to be themselves and to know that they're safe in their educational spaces and celebrated in their educational spaces. And at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about things that you can achieve when your energy isn't going into concealing your identity and tackling shame. And hopefully with the permission that you're giving to children and young people to be themselves, the things that they'll have the space to go on and achieve in their futures is really genuinely exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for having me here today. And thank you for those lovely words. And you're absolutely right. Young people potentially can change the world. And who knows, they might one day change worlds beyond this world. And I hope that they are free and able to change themselves, their schools, their communities in a positive way. And, you know, as I always say, be kind, be safe, be proud and whoever you are and however you identify, be you. Another amazing episode, Joe. That kind of felt like a full circle moment because as I said there, like um, Sean presented at my old school there just a couple of weeks ago. And to think about the progress that's made in that time is incredible and the work that he's done. Yeah, I think to think about the progress that has happened in education since Sean started doing this work is incredible. And me and you kind of do work within inclusive education now. And really, I think it's people like Sean part of the chain that led to the work that we're doing now and I'm so thankful for people like Sean starting this work at a time when there wasn't much support for it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed this conversation we'd be really grateful if you could leave a review or a five-star rating. This really helps other educators to find these stories. If you want to continue the conversation or comment on this week's episode, you can find us on Twitter at Pride Progress. Thanks for listening.